17. Uh, Father, we pray that we would glean everything that we are meant to glean from First Chronicles. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would see more and more of your plan. And even if our life has uh, gone disappointing routes and your plan for our lives has been surprising, uh, Father, we pray that we would see our lives in line with the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. You remember that old movie, The Sound of Music? Remember The Sound of Music? Who's seen The Sound of Music? Who hasn't seen The Sound of Music? We want to judge you right now. Yes, we're one of those judgy churches. No, I'm just kidding. We're not. But everyone should see The Sound of Music at some point, right? Because there's, this, there's all kind of great songs, right? And it's all in Salzburg. It's very beautiful. But early in the, in the movie, right, Maria is at the, uh, at the nunnery. Is that what it's called, where the nuns live? The convent, right? Um, she's at the nunnery, right? right? And... The, and Maria's all, you know, doing her thing, and then they sing a song, the other nuns, remember? And what's, you, remember, you know what they say? They say, what do you do with a problem like Maria? You know, you know what it says? She's, she's always late to prayers, but she's never late to what? Anybody know the song? To every meal. She's on time for every meal, but makes it late to mass, right? So all that to say, I have been singing that song in my head all week, because when we get to Chronicles, I can't help but think, what do you do with a problem like Chronicles, right? I mean, when you think about the Old Testament, this is probably what goes through your mind. The book of Chronicles is that book where you just list names. I mean, look down with me at the book of Chronicles, right? Chronicles is like everything you're afraid of when it comes to the Old Testament, right? Because Chronicles tells a genealogy. But look at 1 Chronicles 1 verse 1. If you have your Bible, go to the very first word in the book of Chronicles, Chronicles is a uh, book where the first nine chapters are genealogies, and you're like, how extensive is this genealogy? And what's the first guy? He starts with Adam. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's that kind of genealogy. It starts in Adam, and it goes for nine chapters, right? And of course, you know, Chronicles is famous because every now and then in the genealogy, there'll be all these like small details occasionally. So you get the prayer of Jabez. You know, remember that book from a few years ago? That happens here in Chronicles. But primarily, you know, you get to Chronicles and you start to think, what am I supposed to do with this boring genealogy stuff? And then what's even stranger when we get to the book of Chronicles is if you've been tracking with us, sort of going through the Old Testament book by book, You'll also know that Chronicles is a retelling of Samuel and Kings. And so even when you're reading Chronicles, even if you get through the genealogy stuff in the first nine chapters, when you get to chapter 10, through the end of the book, really sort of chapters 10 through 29, it's basically the life of David. And you think, wait a second, I've already heard this story. I already know all of this stuff. Why is Chronicles retelling the life of David when I just read the life of David and Samuel? Right? Does it make sense? Well, um, you know, asking why we need a second retelling of the life of David and why we need Chronicles uh, is sort of like asking why do we need four Gospels? You know, I mean, if you read Matthew, you're like, well, I don't need to read Mark because I read Matthew. We would all recognize that those authors have different emphases. They're all telling the same story, right? They're all talking about the kingdom of God. They're all talking about Jesus. But there is something unique to studying what Matthew has to say. And what Mark has to say, and what Luke has to say, and what John has to say, right? Well, that's the way that the book of Chronicles works. It has something unique to say 
even though some of the stories are very similar to what we read in the book of Samuel and Kings, the point is, is it's, this is a retelling, and we need to focus specifically on what the chronicler, the author of Chronicles, is telling us. So what is it that the chronicler is primarily interested about? Why does he feel the need to retell a story when we already have Samuel and Kings? Well, if you look down at Chronicles, you'll see uh, that really most of First Chronicles is a retelling of the life of David. But it skips a story. It skips a story, a very famous story in Chronicles. Anybody know what story the chronicler does not say? You know, a few chapters into Chronicles, the chronicler, the, right, the author, is like, yeah, so in the springtime, when kings are supposed to go to battle, David defeated the Ammonites a few months later. So we're just going to keep moving forward. What is that story that starts off in Samuel with, well, during the springtime when kings are supposed to go to battle, what does Samuel say? That's the story of a woman named Bathsheba. And David stays in Jerusalem. And so it's very interesting about the author of Chronicles is he skips the story, everything about Bathsheba. He does not recount that story. He knows that his audience knows the story, and he knows you know that story, but for some reason he chooses not to retell that. Why would he skip that story? Is it because he's trying to depict David as perfect? Well, no, because he also does tell the story of David's census, which leads to the death of 70,000 people. So he's not presenting David as perfect. Far from it. He is uh, depicting David in truth, right? These are true stories. But what the chronicler is primarily focused on is he wants the people to see how important it is that they worship God in spirit and in truth. And so if you look down at First Chronicles, what's very interesting about this genealogy, if you look, is it goes into all about the priests, and it goes all into musicians. And if you were to read First Chronicles and underline every time that worship is the focus, you would find that you would be underlying certain things about worship in almost every chapter. And the reason it focuses so much on David is because David is the guy who is primarily concerned with the right worship of the one true God. Is he perfect? No, but he focuses on the worship of God. And he also is very, very concerned with something called the temple. And that's exactly what 1 Chronicles 17 is all about. Let's go to our passage. What is this thing with the temple? David wants to build a house, a, a temple, right? A place of worship for the Lord. But what's fascinating is even though this is sort of like the greatest thing that David could ever do, right? He could establish a kingdom. He could build his house of cedar. And the pinnacle of David's life for any king in the ancient world, the pinnacle is to build a temple for his God. And so right there in 1 Chronicles 17, he says, this is the zenith. This is like the high point of my life. I am here. I love the Lord. I am concerned with worship. I want to be righteous. I want to govern the people. And the goal of my life, the crowning achievement that I can do is to build the Lord a temple that is worthy of his majesty. And so that's really where we get the covenant with David. So look down at verse chapter 17 verse 1, right? So David is living in his house, right? He's built his house, right? The palace, and it's beautiful. It's a house of cedar. And David has a wonderful idea. He goes to his prophet, his buddy, Nathan, right? Who speaks on behalf of the Lord. And David says, it's time for me to reach my life's goal. 
everything that I have done has been building to this moment. I am ready to now build the temple for the Lord. The Lord has been in a tabernacle. He's been in a tent for generations. It is time now in Jerusalem to build the temple. And of course, what does Nathan the prophet say? He says, David, the Lord is obviously with you. Go do everything that you want to do. Look at verse 2. What does Nathan say? Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So what I want to pause and have you reflect on then is what we're going to see in the life of David is God's plan, even for David, even for King David, as great as he is, right? all about the worship of the one true God. He's the king. He's the king everybody else is compared to. Even God's plan for David is surprising and it is deeply disappointing. And at the same time, it is better than anything David could possibly imagine. And really, friend, that's what I want you to see out of all these stories in Chronicles is you've got to see in the life of David um, God's plan for his people down to the nitty-gritty details of their life is often surprising. Anybody here think the last year and a half of your life has been a bit surprising? Anybody here not achieve the career goal that they set out? Anybody here not have the marriage goals they set out to have? Anybody not have the financial goals? Anybody here suffering with a child with disabilities? Anybody here who knows somebody who has lost a loved one? What do you do when your life has gone in a surprising direction? And even worse, what do you do when it's disappointing? That's what this passage is about. Everything David has lived for. Everything he has tried to do, even his religious affections. I mean, he doesn't just want to build a temple for his own glory. He wants to achieve this because he thinks the Lord has called him to do it, because he loves the Lord. Even David's sort of religious ministry goals, if you will, are stopped by God. And he will never build the temple. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've had that level of disappointment, but there is a kind of disappointment that's hard to get around. And it, usually it happens, you know, at, at moments when you've gone through a divorce or you've gone through a death or something terrible has happened in your family. And what really hurts is when you know it's never going to happen. You know, your loved one's never coming back. Uh, you know, the child's never going to be healed. Things are not going to be repaired. What do you do at those moments? That's very much what David is going through in his life right now. He will never build the temple, ever. And that's God's answer to it. But, but God has better news and better hope than David could ever imagine. All right, so let's go through that. Let's see that. So I want you to see the surprising news, right? So David decides he's going to build the Lord a temple. And uh, he goes to Nathan, who's a religious guy, right? He's a prophet. He goes to, you know, what we would probably do if you were making a big decision in life. You would go to a spiritual advisor, somebody you respect. Of course, I'm assuming you're probably a Christian when I say that, but if you're trying to follow Jesus, if you have a big plan, if you have a career goal or a life goal or a marriage goal or you want to choose a college or whatever you're trying to decide to do, right, you're, you and I, we typically go to people that we see as spiritual leaders, and that's exactly what David does. And what does the spiritual leader tell David? What does he say? Does he say, oh, David, no, you need to pray about this some more. Mm, I don't know about that. Is that what he says? No, he says, go do it. But what we're supposed to see, I think, from the life of Nathan right here is even though, even though 
Nathan loves the Lord, and even though Nathan is a prophet, he does not always exactly know what the Lord is up to. And God surprises Nathan because Nathan is wrong. He shouldn't build the house. Of course, now God's not slamming Nathan for saying that, you know, far from it. God just intervenes. Look at verse 3. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, and he said, "Mm -mm, Nathan, don't tell David to build the temple. He says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. And in the Hebrew right there, you is emphasized. It actually reads more like you, not you, will build me a house. You are not going to do this. Do you you feel like the sort of stinging uh, humility that would have required of David? He just said, I want to build you a house. I want to do this great ministry goal for you. And you're going to tell me I can't do it? It's surprising, right? And, of course, it's disappointing. So is it just that, you know, God thwarts his plan and he wants David to sort of just, like, suck it up, buttercup, get on with life, don't complain, you know, toughen up a little bit? Is that the message? Is that the character of God? Does he just say, no, you can't? Far from it, friends, you've got to see that we serve a God of grace. And and grace is unmerited favor, love that you and I did not deserve. And what God does in his grace is God starts to reveal his own character to David. He says, remember who I am. And then he amazingly reveals that David's small plan for his life, David's plan, you know what the problem with it is? David's plan is just simply too small. It's just too small. And so what God does with David is God starts to reveal the mystery of the gospel. God starts to reveal what the whole story of the Bible is all about. And he looks at David and he says, David, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son will build me a temple. But even more importantly, David, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build your house. And one day, one of your offspring will reign forever. And he will sit on your throne forever. And God makes a covenant promise, a solemn bond with David, that one day one of David's descendants will be the king to end all kings. You see, the problem with David is he had too small of a view of what God was up to. You know, how many of your disappointments in life could be because your view of what God is calling you to do and the purpose of your life is simply too small? Uh, You know, one way to maybe step back and ask that is, you know, If I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars, let's do a thought experiment. If I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars right now, what would you do with that million dollars? You know, have you ever, thought, have you ever done this thought experiment? It's a wonderful thought experiment. If I gave you just, you know, a, 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 you know, a huge amount of money, and I said, you know, you do whatever you want with it, what would your heart choose to do with that money? Remember that goofy movie, Pirates of the Caribbean, with Johnny Depp? You know that movie? I love that movie. Actually, I don't like those movies, but there's parts that I love. And they're usually the parts with Johnny Depp because he's awesome. And in that movie, you remember he has a compass? You remember the compass? It's like a, it's a running motif in the movie. And Johnny Depp has this compass. And the, the trick about the compass is what? Who remembers? It doesn't point to north. It points to what? It points to whatever you most desire, right? So that's sort of the running theme in the movie is we've got the, he has this thing that points him in the direction of whatever he wa- most wants, right? I love that image of our heart. 
Like if you can figure out where your heart is aiming, that really reveals what you're living for. I mean, if somebody gave you a million dollars and just said, here, have extra money, what would you do with it? Would, any, would there ever be a moment where you would say, I want to give as much to the Lord and as much to the gospel and as much to kingdom values as I can? Or would you be like, well, I'm going to take that. I want a new car. You know, I want a new vacation house. And like, maybe I'll give like, you know, I got to give timbers into the Lord, I guess. Right. Or would you start off and you would say, I want to give everything that I've got to the Lord. I'm going to try to maximize it. What would you give towards? Um, Somebody asked me this a few years ago, and uh, I thought it was a wonderful question. And I really reflected. I don't know why I took it seriously. It's a silly question, right? It's a thought experiment. Uh, but you know what I ended up coming down with? I said, if, I, you know, if somebody gave me uh, just this huge amount of money, you know what I would do with it? You, my answer doesn't have to be your answer. This is just my answer. My answer was I said, I would fund adoptions. I would take as much money as I could, and I would go to my friends and any believers out there who want to adopt kids, and I would just fund those adoptions because adoptions super expensive. No one says amen. Some of you have done this. You're still recovering from the cost of the adoption, right? But what a beautiful depiction of the gospel, right? That we as believers adopt people into the family because we have been adopted into God's family. Now, that doesn't need to be your answer. You know, maybe you want to spay and neuter kittens or something. I don't care. (laughs) But for me, I wanted to give towards adoptions because I felt like it was a beautiful depiction of the gospel. But here's the cool thing about that. Here's the breakthrough. Do I need a million dollars to give towards adoption? No. And when I was thinking about it, it happened right after my tax returns came back. And so I was rich, baby. And the next week, my friends Stephen and Bree emailed a bunch of us, and guess what they said? They said they were adopted. A little black child from inner city Atlanta, and they needed $30,000. And guess what I said? Screw you. No. (laughs) No. Of course I didn't. (laughs) What did I do? I didn't give him a million dollars, but I gave freely of it. Right? Because what I wanted had changed. Right? David wants to build a temple, but that goal isn't big enough. It's not big enough. There's something, even the temple was pointing to something bigger. The temple was always pointing to Jesus, to the coming son of David who would fulfill all of the covenant promises and bring about the reconciliation of the nations. David didn't know that, and when God revealed that to him, David had an incredible response. So, you know, what's that response from the Lord? Well, look with me. I want you to just, we'll just run through this as quickly as I can. I want you to see how God starts to speak a better word to David. And I want you to see this and how it impacts you. Look down with me at verse 5. God says, you're not going to build me a house, right? He says, your life goal is not going to happen. David's grappling with the surprising plan of God and the disappointment that he's not going to get his life's goal. Pretty big deal for David, right? And verse 5, what the Lord says, is he says, listen, buddy, (laughs) listen, David, I haven't lived in a house this whole time. And I've never asked for a house. Why do you think I need a house? What I want you to focus on right there in verse 5 is 
remember who's speaking. We are talking about the God of the universe who has created every star and every galaxy for all of the years of creation. And David says, I want to build you a beautiful temple. And that God's response is, I've never demanded a temple. I have always been content to dwell with my people. I'm content to live in a tent with you. When you were in the wilderness, I was with you in the wilderness. Friends, part of the beauty of God, part of the beauty of God is not only is he creator, not only did he make your toenails and like, you know, all the stars in the universe, not only is he the creator, wrapped up in the very heart of God is a humility that we will never cease to praise. There's a humility with God that he says, I'm content to live in tents with you guys. I mean, what, what is the point of the temple? The temple is the place where God dwells with his people. Where was the first temple, by the way? Where was the first temple? Where did God dwell with his people? In the Garden of Eden. And then when he called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless the nations. And he follows that people group into the Exodus and into the wilderness in the book of Numbers. Where does God dwell? At the very center of his people. God's heart is a heart of humility. And it is a heart that yearns to dwell with his people. Friends, that's the God you serve. And think about that. David is not a perfect guy. <laughs> David has done terrible things. And yet, and yet, because God is loving and gracious, he says, I have chosen you. I will dwell with you. Despite all of your sin, I dwell with you and I love you. You see, God reveals his character. And, you know, you, know, you keep thinking, you, I need to tell you stuff to do. It's a, I hate that. I hate it when people are like, tell me what to do. I don't, you don't, there are not things that you need. You know what you need to do if you're going to do anything to love the Lord more? You, know what you, need to, you need to take like the aperture of your heart. You know the aperture is like when you widen out the camera lens? You need to widen the aperture of your heart to see more of who God really is. <laughs> if you could see more of the humility of God <laughs> and his profound love for you and that his goal is to dwell again with his people, Friends, you will know how to live. You will become who you were meant to be. Uh, the solution is not a 10-step process of more habits. The solution is to widen your heart to who God is. And that's exactly what the Lord wants David to do. Right? He, wants to see the hum he wants to see his humility. Right? And think about what Jesus says. When God comes in human form, John 1.14 says God came and he, he moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us. And Jesus says, I am lowly and humble of heart. My yoke is easy, and I have come to bring you rest. And so he's showing who he is. And then David's response, you know, what God wants him to get at, you know, God is not slamming him in verse 7 and 8. He's not talking down to him. You know, what, what the Lord is saying is he's saying, I want you to embody that same kind of humility. Look at verse 7. He says, now, therefore, thus, said, thus shall you say to David, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. He's not saying, David, you're unimportant. 
That's not his point. What he's saying is he's saying, I am humble of heart. I am willing to dwell in a tent because my ultimate goal is not a building. My ultimate goal is to dwell with my people because I love you. And I will receive your praise. And he says, David, I want you to have that same heart of humility. Never forget, I plucked you from a, from a pasture, buddy. You were the least of your brothers. And I chose you because I want you to embody my humility. Isn't that beautiful? And then, of course, the Lord goes on and he says, not only does he reveal his character, he starts to reveal his plan. And it's beautiful because, you know, the Lord says, are you going to build me a house? Actually, I'm going to build you a house. And he starts to do sort of a wordplay, right? Because house starts to become sort of dynasty, right? He's like, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. And of course, what happens is one of the most, this is one of the most important promises in the entire Bible. This is right up with, you know, the covenant with Abraham. Uh, This is right, it's as important as the splitting of the Red Sea. This is so important to the Bible. Because what God promises is he says, I'm going to use one of your physical descendants to reign forever. He will never, you will never lack a man on the throne. And of course, uh, you know, what happens as the Bible goes on, right, is we understand ultimately who is the son of David who reigns forever, who has an indestructible life, who is the holy one that will not see corruption. It's Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man. He's God in human form, and he is the descendant of David. You know, it's that great, we just sang a great hymn this morning. He is great David's greater son. You know, Jesus is constantly saying, how is the Messiah greater than David? And how is the Messiah David's kid, but also David's Lord? You know, he mentions this in almost every gospel account. And the answer, of course, is the incarnation. It's because the Messiah is God himself and yet fully human. And of course, now David is being told uh, simply just that his son's going, one of his offspring is going to reign forever. But what he's seeing, of course, is that God has a bigger plan than what David is thinking for his life. You know, it's a plan that entails the gospel. So let me just sort of maybe wrap up, you know, if I can. And when I say wrap up, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop. That just means I can see the runway. You know, when you're on an airplane and it's like, boom, we're going to land indefinitely between 25 and 35 minutes from now, but I'm going to say we're about to land. That's what's happening. (laughs) I'm willing to bet that for many of you, your life plan has been very surprising. The providence of God has led you into surprising places, and I'm willing to bet if you're not terrified of a disappointing life, you've already experienced some measure of that. But what's the hope? Is it suck it up, buttercup? Is it possible the gospel has a better word to speak than just buck up, guy? It does. What David needs to do is he's got to see his life as a part of the story that God's telling. David is not the main character in his life story. The Lord is. Uh, Friends, have you come to that realization? Do you know you are not the main character in the story? You aren't, and neither am I. Jesus is the main character. And until you get that, your life will be disappointing because you will be building your house on sand. 
And what does Jesus say? You have to build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. Build your life on him. And so that even when your life takes disappointing or surprising turns, you're not frustrated by it. You know that your life is wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has come, and he is coming again. So let me just wrap up with this. You know, look down at verse 16. You know, if you're saying, okay, I get it. The gospel is bigger than my life, but how do I actually, like, take this on? How do I own this myself? I want you to just see a few things. Look at verse 16. How does David respond? God says, your, your life plan is too small, buddy. You're going to have a disappointing turn in your life. You're not going to build the temple. And how does David respond? I love this. Look at verse 16. It says, David went and sat before the Lord. Don't you love that he says that? The chronicler writes those words. I mean, God just told him his life is going to be very disappointing. And David's response is he says, I just need to sit and be with you. I just need to sit and pray. You know, I mean, if you're trying to figure out why your life has taken disappointing turns or your career or your family or whatever, you're trying to figure out what the Lord has for you, um, Nathan may not know. Nathan may not know. Nathan may tell you something wrong. He may be right, but he may not. You know what you need to do? You need to go sit and be with the Lord. Isn't it funny how people are? We're like, hmm, how do I lose the 19 pounds I gained since COVID? How do I lose the COVID-19? And you go to your doctor and you're like, hey, I need to lose some weight and I need to get healthy. And what does the doctor say? Well, eat less and exercise. And you're like, what? Is there another way? <laughs> There's a third way, right? There's some other path. And your doctor says, no, diet and exercise. You're like, Lord, how, how is my life supposed to fit into your plan? Why is my life disappointing? And your pastor says, well, you should probably go sit and pray. Think about the gospel. And people are funny because they go, what? Is there another way? Is there, is there another Nathan online I can email and maybe he'll tell me? Friends, they're not shortcuts. There's not shortcuts. We have the means of grace. We know how God communicates. It's through his word and it's through prayer. It's through confession of sin. It's through corporate worship. And if you think you're going to get some message from God outside of that, buddy, I have some diet pills I would love to sell you. I got to figure out how to pay for college for all 14 of my kids. <laughs> David sits with the Lord he goes to the means of grace. And then I won't read all of it, but I want you to just look at verse 20. What happens is when David accepts that his life is wrapped up in God's bigger story, David says, who am I? Who am I that you would use me? And friends, that's the heart of somebody who knows the grace of God. Who am I? You know, it's right there, verse 16. Who am I? that Jesus would die for me? Who am I that he would still hear my prayers even after everything I've looked at online, after everything that I've said in my life, 
after all of my half-hearted worship, he still hears my prayer. Who am I that God would love me? And then in verse 20, David erupts in praise. He just praises God. He says, there's nobody like you. There's nobody like you who can make the universe and has humility of heart, who really will not look away from sin and yet is forgiving. There's nobody like you. And then you know what's great about Chronicles? When you, after David prays that and he breaks through with praise, everything else in David's life, you know what he does? Everything in his life is all about preparing Solomon to build the temple. And that's what Chronicles is saying. It recounts all the victories of David. If you read in chapter 18, David goes out, he defeats all the bad guys. He collects all kind of gold and silver. And what does he do with it? God gives him a million dollars. What does David do? He devotes it all to the Lord. He amasses incredible silver, incredible gold, incredible bronze. And he does everything that he can to equip his kid, Solomon, to build the temple. So that when David dies, his last speech to Solomon, he says, Son, here are the plans that the Lord gave me for the temple. Here's all the gold you need. Here's all the wood. I have done everything that I can short of what God has forbidden me to do. But friends, he only realizes the trajectory of his life. (laughs) He only realizes that's what he's supposed to do after he sits and accepts the plan of God. And he praises him. Uh, friends, could it be that your next step in life is not going to Nathan because he doesn't know? Is it that you actually just need to sit with the God who loves you and to experience the grace of God? And then, friends, you may, like David, realize what the rest of your life is meant to be about. Uh, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Chronicles, and Lord, you know our heartaches and our disappointments. Father, we lift one another up, and we ask that your grace would be real to us today. Lord, that your gospel would have a better word than all of our failed disappointments. And Father, I pray that we would worship you as David did. Who are we that you would set your love on us? We are here to praise you in spirit and in truth. Lord, would you be welcome here? Amen. Shall be.